This Athletic Podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app. So you can bet on multiple scenarios and build your own bets with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. It's for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and on today's episode, we're talking about Carlo Ancelotti and Everton Football Club. Now, since Ancelotti took over, Everton have won the third most points in the Premier League after Liverpool and Manchester City. So it's in the context of that impressive fact, that impressive start to his tenure, and of course, Ancelotti's return to Stamford Bridge for the first time this weekend, having been sacked by Chelsea in the bowels of Goodison Park back in 2011. So with one eyebrow raised each, we delve into Ancelotti and Everton, how it came to be, how it has started and what's to come. Joining me today, Paddy Boyland, covering Everton for The Athletic. How are you doing, Paddy? Really well, thanks. Good to good to have you guys here and to talk about a bit of a mini Everton renaissance, if we can call it that. There's quite a lot to write about and talk about right now. Uh, you also are part of the Glad Tidings podcast, the Everton-specific pod on The Athletic. It's not just the start to Ancelotti's reign, plenty happening off the pitch as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, for those that don't know, Everton are looking to move into a, a new stadium very close to where we're recording actually on the on the banks of the River Mersey in time for 2023. Everton also got rid of the main shirt sponsor recently so it's not like you say it's not just the stuff that's happening on it there's been a bit of upheaval on the pitch there's also that upheaval off it as well there is never ever a dull moment covering Everton Football Club I can assure you of that. <laughs> never a dull moment on the Zonal Marking pod which is on tour this week as you've mentioned Michael Cox is also with us Michael the tactical trendy writer for The Athletic I, I call you something different each week as someone who who's covered not just uh, modern contemporary tactics in football but also uh, European history in terms of tactics and its trends Carlo Ancelotti something of a a key person in the last what, what would you say 30 years of European tactical discussion yeah, really interesting manager. I mean, it's it's fascinating to look back at his formative days. I, I touched on this in an article recently, but he came through really as the assistant to Rigo Sacchi, um, who was the Italy national team manager in the early 90s. And Sacchi was a very strict kind of 4-4-2 man, didn't really focus too much upon the strengths of individuals and try to accommodate them. You know, players had to fit into the team. He, he really singled out Ancelotti, didn't he, as, as something of a protégé? Yeah, so Ancelotti played in his Milan sides in the late 90s and was one of those players who was always considered a kind of future manager. And uh, yeah, even when Ancelotti was still winding down his playing days for Milan, Saki summoned him to be his assistant manager um, and still played a little bit for Italy at that time. But yeah, he was, um, you know, for a long time really seen as 
the natural heir to Saki, who was a hugely successful and innovative manager, but also someone who divided Italian football because he, he kind of went against certain traditions in Italian football. So to be his protege was, you could say, a kind of poison chalice. Um, and indeed, he kind of went away from that approach. Mm. Um, yeah, well, what would you say in Ancelotti's earlier managerial days and before he even came to England with Chelsea and some of those great Milan teams, for example, what were the key differences, I suppose, between a, a Saki Milan team and an Ancelotti Milan team as we knew them? Well, Saki basically did want to accommodate a, a number 10 and famously when he was uh, at Parma, sold Gianfranco Zola and refused to sign Roberto Baggio and Ancelotti kind of had that mentality, but really all changes when he went to Juventus, he worked with Zidane, he was just wowed by Zidane's ability and ended up basing the side around him. And then that kind of became the template. He would go to a new club, say, who are my best players, kind of shove them in the team and try and fit other people around them. It was really everything we didn't expect from him at the early stage of his career. And I think it's interesting now he's gone back to Everton, which with respect is probably the first club that isn't a super club who are packed with these kind of wonderful world-class players. He's almost gone a little bit back to, you know, the manager he was towards the start of his managerial career. In terms of stepping away from the super clubs to Everton, uh, just the, the last bit, I suppose, on his history and what he's done pre-Everton. Uh, we know that there's been plenty of success, plenty of triumphs, but as with almost any manager these days, especially one with the amount of jobs on his CV, some less successful tenures as well. Uh, and specifically recently, talk me through what's not gone so well in the last few years for Ancelotti. Yeah, Bayern and Napoli, he ran into problems. I mean, he won the league at Bayern in his first season. But you know, the Bundesliga is in a funny situation. It seems you can do an almost sackable job and still win the league with Bayern. Um, the issue with, with him at Bayern and at Napoli as well was a lot of the players were just surprised how kind of lax the training sessions were. They thought really compared to, to Guardiola and Sarri, the managers he succeeded, he lacks the kind of attention to detail in terms of the attacking moves and the passing combinations. And I think, again, that speaks to the manager that Ancelotti has become. He does like giving freedom to his individual players. And while a certain level of player clearly appreciates that, I think there's maybe a higher level of player that in recent years has become accustomed to real in-depth, methodical uh, automatisms, as they say, in terms of the, the combinations in the final third. We haven't seen that so much you know, from Ancelotti as a coach. Still early days at Everton, but a really positive start uh, in in terms of performances and points and uh, a reconnection with the fans, I suppose, to some extent, who had become so disillusioned to life under Marco Silva. Paddy, from what you know, did Ancelotti apply for this job, go after this Everton job? Or was it a case of Everton thinking, actually, we might be able to tempt Ancelotti here and having almost to sell themselves to the great man? I think the the wider context is that Farhad Mashiri, Everton's owner, as everybody, everybody would know him now, came to the club in 2016 and more or less from the get-go sought out what he classed as a world-class manager to push this project on. By hook or by crook, he didn't get there. Everton not being of the necessary status to attract some of those guys in, in that short-term period. So they ended up with a succession of, of managers, Ronald Koeman into Sam Allardyce into into then obviously um, Marco Silva too, who Mashiri really liked as an up-and-coming manager. So there's been deviation, but at the back of Mashiri's mind, there's always been that instinct, I need to get a guy with a status, more or less above Everton at times, to raise the profile of the club in on the continent, to push them on, all those kinds of things. So Ancelotti, it was, when Everton approached Ancelotti after his Napoli sacking, that was not the first time Ancelotti had entered Farhad Mashiri's mind, we're led to believe. He'd courted him 
after he left Bayern Munich, he'd looked at him in, in that kind of period as well before Napoli. And it just so happened that they were really fortunate with the turn of events. When Marco Silva left, Carlo Ancelotti obviously was still Napoli manager. And basically what happened was Everton kind of crossed crossed him off a list and looked at other candidates, a wide net of candidates, even including people like David Moyes. Such was, was how desperate it almost had become. Ancelotti then gets sacked, curious turn of events, and he comes back onto the radar and immediately then people like Moisa cast aside, Mikel Arteta cast aside a little bit and they started to look seriously at Ancelotti. What we're told of the negotiations, it was very much a two-way process. It wasn't Ancelotti in a normal job interview like as you would, staking his case as to why he should be Everton manager. It was also, it was a bit of that, but it was also Everton saying why Carlo Ancelotti should come there and effectively having to convince him that the vision was right, that the project was was tailor-made for him. So I think it it was definitely a two-way street. He was impressed by that vision. There are substantial impediments, such as the the, the financial situation at the club. They're close skirting, close to FFP um, borderlines. So they they do need to be careful. But I think in the long term, he believes he will be backed. And that's one of the reasons he's joined Everton. Yeah, as you mentioned, Michael, a very different situation to his, his last, what, four, five, six, seven jobs uh, potentially that he's arrived into. Cast your mind back to the last few months of of Marco Silva's reign, the start of this season. What would you say were Everton's major problems under Marco Silva? And bear in mind, we haven't got all day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A variety of issues. First and foremost, I thought in the last few games, I thought they were a little bit unlucky, actually. I saw them a few times and I thought they actually played decent football. I think whenever I saw them live, I was surprised how easy they were to play through in terms of the midfield in particular. And maybe that's not a problem that's been completely solved under Ancelotti. Um, but defensively, I mean, they Silva, you look at his size, they, they generally did concede too many goals. Um, and I think there was a slight problem as well. And it was the first time in the Premier League where we'd seen Silva do a job basically for more than six months. I mean, he'd impressed at Hull and at Watford. Um you know, we, we hear a lot of these days about the new manager bounce and it was almost like, you know, he, he ran out of time to uh, depend on that. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing with Marco Silva is that he was the scapegoat, as so often is the case with managers, but there were a load of other issues across the board as well. So if we, if we look at tactical things, I think the, the loss of Idrissa Gay as the midfield screen, given how high Everton were pressing under Silva and even this season, they were up there in, in terms of passes per defensive action, top two, three, four in the league. The problem was that when teams bypassed that press without Idrissa Gay, it basically became tantamount to a clear-cut chance. And they, when when the opposition got into the box, they, they were scoring goals more or less with regularity. So I think they were a bit unfortunate because, of course, they lost Idrissa Gay, tried to get a replacement, did get a replacement in Jean-Philippe Cabamin, who hasn't been seen since, more or less. He made two appearances for club. So stuff like that, slightly poor planning in the transfer market, a few tactical quirks, how easy it is to play through that kind of aggressive press. I mean, we, we both wrote a piece, didn't we? We wrote a joint piece about his, his issues at set pieces, constructing a team at set pieces, glaring gaps at the back post, for example, to the point where Everton under him were conceding the most goals of any side in, in the league in that area. 
And I think by the end, this kind of idea also that on the training ground, his instructions were a little bit too much for some of the players. There were lots of kind of hard, in-depth kind of instructions where he would take them through, almost like a professor would, a kind of a group of university undergraduate students. He would take them through step by step by step, and it became quite draining. So if you, in that context, you look at it now, and somebody like Ancelotti who does obviously give instruction, but it's certainly not as detailed and as dense as that. He's almost the perfect remedy for a, a flagging group of players. Everton were never as bad as the, as the position made them look under silver. That needs to be borne in mind. I think they were probably seventh or eighth in, in terms of XG throughout that period. So I think the squad was capable of a resurgence. Ancelotti's just added that extra bit on top to make them now look like what you would say Europe. Europa League contenders I would suggest and in the interim between Marco Silva and Carlo Ancelotti you mentioned they they cast the net wide with Ancelotti not initially available and of course it was Duncan Ferguson who was in interim charge as caretaker boss and as interim spells go it, it, it you know caused a lot of noise didn't it to what extent Paddy do you think Duncan Ferguson had an impact as caretaker boss? I think he had a huge impact. The first thing is Ancelotti arrives at a vastly different club to the one that Silva departed. When he left, there were concerns, real concerns over a relegation battle. And if Ferguson had lost two or three games during a really tricky run of fixtures as interim manager, Ancelotti would have come in effectively having to be that firefighter in the in the short-term, privileged short-term results to the detriment, perhaps, of long-term prospects. But with a depleted squad against top opposition, Ferguson did manage to get a tune from those players. And it's, it's really interesting because in the past, when Everton have looked to interim managers internally, it's always been a David Unsworth type figure. Unsworth obviously had two stints as Everton caretaker manager, but he was neglected this time following a now famous meeting in the, in the Finch Farm, Everton's training training base in the canteen with Farhad Mashiri and Bill Kenwright. I think Bill Kenwright had championed uh, Duncan Ferguson's credentials for that role, thought he was the man to get something out of a underperforming squad, if we want to call it that. And he invited Farhad Mashiri into the canteen and effectively said, go on then, give us your pitch. What would you do to turn this around? Ferguson's first thing was, I want to get Everton playing 4-4-2. We've got two players that can play up front together and do a really good job of it, Richarlison and Dominic Calvert-Lewin. And actually what you see now is that Ancelotti has just built, it sounds it sounds bizarre to say this, given that it's Carlo Ancelotti on one side of the spectrum and a relatively untested Duncan Ferguson at the other. But Ancelotti has just followed on from the principles that Ferguson put in place, 4-4-2, hard work, compete for every ball, second balls, and simplified instructions. I, I see this, what, we, what we've got now, as just a continuation of that phase. And that's quite interesting, Michael, because Ancelotti married to some extent with the 4-4-2 from his early developmental days under Saki and then his own individual styles. Uh, what kind of 4-4-2 is this? How would you sum it up? Because, of course, uh, you can have a diamond in midfield, you can have that flat four in midfield. Uh, explain to me what Ancelotti or Duncan Ferguson's Everton 4-4-2 is looking like so far. Yeah, I mean, to look at the 4-4-2 that Saki played and that Ancelotti used to like early in his career, it was almost like four central midfielders. It wasn't a diamond, but it was four very tight players. Italians don't really do wingers the same way that other countries do, and they played very narrow. The shape has been very good, but I think he's he's kind of found a nice balance between 
you know, getting four players who are tight together and send the pitch, but also using Walcott and, and Bernard. Walcott, obviously, tremendous pace. And Bernard's, a, you know, one of the few players in the Premier League, I think you say, is, is really a, a kind of natural winger, can play either side, likes going down the outside. But just to go back to the Ferguson period, I mean, when I first saw that Ferguson had come in and was playing 4-4-2, I thought, OK, this is going to be a bit of an old school, like just lob the ball forwards, you know bit old school but I thought that the shape without possession was excellent they were so difficult to play through which again to compare it to to Silver's time was a complete transformation the opposition just really struggled for space in midfield I think what I would say is that obviously there's been clear progression in terms of what's what took place under Ferguson and now under Ancelotti. In Ferguson's first game in charge against Chelsea a game that Everton obviously won quite comfortably in the end Everton made 37 tackles fired up by obviously the, the figure that Ferguson is in, in the dressing room. 37 tackles from a midfield that included Morgan Schneidel and, and Gilfie Sigurdsson, two players who you would hardly associate with that amount of work rate off the ball. So he got a tune in that regard. But I don't think anybody at the club or any of the journalists covering Everton thought that approach was sustainable over 38 games. I don't think you can always make 37 tackles in a game. And even in that short period Everton sustained even more injuries so Luca Dean susceptible to muscle problems picked up another injury some of the guys in the midfield Schneidlin got injured Sigurdsson carried a knock through some of those games and they ended up having to play Mason Holgate a centre-back in defensive midfield as a result so there have been tweaks there have been really subtle tweaks here to to get the most out of this midfield what we have now is a different setup and I think it is interesting insofar as there's no number 10 Whereas Gilfie Sigurdsson played as a 10 under Silver, probably to Silver's detriment, as I'm sure we'll discuss later. Now the 4-4-2 has a system in which your two central midfielders are basically functional ball winners there to service the needs of more intelligent, more adept technical players. There is one out-and-out winger in Theo Walcott who, when fit, pushes the lines. He goes beyond, looks to create a, a further problem for, for the defence. But there is also somebody like Bernard, who I suppose is an auxiliary number 10 from the left, who comes inside. His job is to come inside, allow Luca Dean on the overlap, so that Everton have kind of a dual playmaking threat in those areas. I remember one of his first press conferences after the Newcastle game on, on I think it was late December, 28th perhaps. Ancelotti identified that the main attacking strength of this Everton side is the ability of Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison in the air. And he said, we've got two of the best crosses in the league, a fullback in Jabril Sadibi. Loads of flaws elsewhere, particularly defensively, but a very good crosser of the ball. Luca Dean, slightly less flawed, but still flawed defensively, a great crosser of the ball. If you get enough crosses on the heads of Calvert-Lewin and, and Richarlison, you'll score goals. So Bernard comes inside. It's kind of the underlap thing that Gary Neville spoke about so many years ago. Bernard goes, comes on the inside, looks to play make from the centre, where I think personally he is best. And then you have Luca Dean and Sadibi pushing on. It's a really nice balance to it when everybody is fit. Yeah. The problem arises when you look at Theo Walcott's injury record because he's throughout his career, he's been another one really susceptible to, to muscle injuries. And Everton don't have a like-for-like like on that side. Whereas you could lose Bernard on the left and Iwobi comes in and it's more or less the same. On the right, Theo Walcott doesn't have a dovetailing option. So you end up with a Wobi playing on the right and it becomes much more narrow. That's what we saw at the Emirates a few weeks ago. And I don't think it gets the best out of this squad. I don't think it's as dynamic and as varied a threat 
as you need to take on the top sides. That's just that's my opinion anyway. Now here on the Zonal Marking podcast, we are bang up to date with tactical trends, but not always to the same extent when it comes to fashion trends. The good news is that this athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. From there, you fill in a style quiz and tell them all about your personal style, budget, size, shape, and all the measurements that you didn't know existed. A personal stylist then sends you five items of clothing handpicked especially for you from a selection of brands. You try on everything at home and style it out with other items from your wardrobe. And then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For the stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. So you try before you buy, at home, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Stitch Fix allows you to save time, because they do the shopping for you, to discover new styles, because they've got a broad selection of different styles and brands, and to enjoy top styling tips as well. These are experts that give you ideas on how to wear the items they pick out for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co dot UK forward slash athletic. Michael, the... It's been touched on already. It seems like it was a, a vision of Duncan Ferguson's carried on by Ancelotti, but the, the headline partnership, if you will, the headline players under Ancelotti are those two front men, Richarlison and Calvert-Lewin. Not only the roles that they're playing, their partnership, playing very close together, but also the level at which they're both playing. Certainly in Calvert-Lewin's case, a, a clear leap in form and output and really catching the eye of everyone at a pretty good time with uh, England number nines dropping like flies. Yeah, I think it's always been obvious that he's got the raw attributes. I mean, he's very good in the air and he's also very quick, which, you know, I think if you're a defensive line gives you options, you don't know whether to push up or, or drop off. Um, I think it sounds it sounds an obvious thing, but I think just a run of games has, has really helped him. And his relationship with Richarlison has been outstanding. I mean... Did you expect Richarlison to, to play so well through the middle as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's just a really good player and I think he can play in a variety of positions really well. Um, but their understanding has just been excellent. I mean, Calvert-Lewin with his back to goal has, has worked really well. He's made some good kind of dummy runs into the channels to create space. Um, yeah, they just have a really good understanding. And um, and I think it's important as well to go back to, you know, the, if you play 4-4-2, it can't be like a 4-4-2 that we saw in the 1990s. It's got to be almost with the two forwards playing as bonus midfielders. You know, the way... Atletico Madrid have played for the last few years and they've both been capable of that and and they're the things you kind of have to do if you want to justify playing as a centre forward you you know you've really got to work hard without the ball to make up for the lack of a kind of third central midfielder so with and without the ball they've just been really really impressive in, in their all-round game yeah without the ball is is key when uh, when really zooming out and giving a full tactical overview of any team. Uh, Paddy you mentioned how under Marco Silva Everton without the ball could be uh, something of a, a turnstile at times, not too difficult to play through. Have there been 
uh, obvious improvements in that regard? I don't think they press quite as high to start um, or anywhere near as fastidiously. I think actually what's happened is they've dropped off a little bit and now probably in more of a mid-block with regards to if we're, if we're looking at things from a tactical point of view. What that's meant is that there are less glaring gaps between midfield and defence, which is obviously very necessary. When not you exposing the, themselves to the same extent. Yeah, because they've they've not got that Adrissage type figure at the moment to to fit in that particular part of the pitch. So they 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 don't expose themselves quite as much. They press, but I think they press more intelligently now. They know when to go. They know when to stay. The slight issue is that if you're playing against a side that's in four three three or four five one, you run the risk of a numerical overload in the centre of the park. I think the way Everton combat that is Bernard sometimes shifts in, Luca Dean pushes up, or you get a scenario in which one of the two drops in almost as a, a split striker or as a number 10. Richarlison does that better. And I think purely because he's Everton's most skillful attacker, he's more or less allowed a free roll. He can do whatever he wants. I actually think he's really good in that left channel, which is almost why he's used on the wing at times. Pulls off into that left channel, runs at defenders, think about his goal or look up his goal against Crystal Palace recently. Calvert-Lewin wins a brilliant flick on down that touchline and Richarlison, more or less from the centre circle, does takes the on a number of players and, and does the rest. That's the kind of quality Richarlison is capable of and it's also a perfect illustration of how that partnership works. You have Calvert-Lewin who's they're both good in the air but Calvert-Lewin I think is slightly more imposing in the air wins slightly more flicks on. Richarlison then can go running behind and they dovetail really well. I think it basically what happened was Ferguson, who had spent a lot of time working on the training ground with Calvert-Lewin, drumming up a really positive relationship, had identified that neither of those two guys were perfectly suited to the lone striking role. If you think about Calvert-Lewin, he maybe didn't, he lacked a bit of support. He was doing quite a lot of extra work running the channels. So he wouldn't be in the box when those chances were created, when the, when the ball came in. The main bit beneficiary last season was actually Gilfie Sigurdsson. As, as a number 10, I think he scored 13 goals with Richarlison. Richarlison obviously benefited too. Now he's allowed to, to play as a penalty box, box poacher. Almost has got 15 goals at the start of March, way beyond what he's achieved before. And that's mainly down to how Ferguson and Ancelotti have worked with him on his positioning. Richarlison, likewise, doing very, very well. So I, I actually think if you break components of the team down, that is where Everton are strongest at this moment in time, maybe by quite a distance. Yeah, and that helps me to segue quite well on to uh, another part of the field where, Michael, it's perhaps less obvious, uh, A, which duo to go with for Ancelotti which uh, partnership to develop but also the personnel that they have in the system that we're discussing I'm talking about the centre of midfield now we've mentioned Gilfie Sigurdsson he is a a key part of this discussion given the type of player that he is what he can do but also what he can't do but just in general is it fair to say that in central midfield that's still where there's something of a question mark about this Everton team, you know, in the context of Ancelotti coming in mid-season and not being able to necessarily sculpt his perfect duo. Yeah, I don't think, you know, as Paddy said at the start, the loss of Adrissa Gay was, was really big for them and they haven't been able to compensate for that. I, I haven't really seen any games that Everton played where I've been really convinced with the central midfield partnership, to be honest. Um, I think Sigurdsson is a bit of an issue. Um, you know, when he's played as a number 10, which obviously they don't have anymore, but I think he really demands that the side is 
based around him. And I think Everton, if he's going to be in the side, I much prefer him in that kind of deeper midfield role, playing a bit of a functional role rather than as number 10. I don't think he's particularly good at it, but I think he he doesn't cause the side so many options in terms of the final third. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of looking forward to next season, that's for me the the first priority Everton must have in the in the transfer market for strengthening the side. As well as Gilfie, there's Fabian Delph, Schneiderlin, Andre Gomez back from injury, Tom Davies. There there are plenty of, of options in here, Paddy. What what do you think is the the most obvious midfield duo here? How how's Angelotti going about it so far? I don't think Ancelotti knows himself, <laughs> to be quite frank. And we've seen a lot of rotation, particularly in that part of the pitch, multiple different combinations tried out, purely because he's trying to come to terms with who can do what and who dovetails well with who. Um, and you said that primarily a functional role, the central midfielder in, in this system as it is at the moment. Yeah, I think so. I think the main aim is to get Bernard on the ball, to get the get the ball quickly vertically to the, the main two strikers or to get crosses into the box if sides are sat deep. So that means then that the the role is drastically altered for say a Gilfie Sigurdsson or a, or a Fabian Delph. Sigurdsson remains I think a really big issue because as a number 10 he's obviously a really good striker of the ball particularly from range but you negate quite a lot of those strengths if you play him deeper and you, you lose that goal scoring ability. He's obviously a good passer of the football, but there are issues defensively. And you could say that somebody like Andre Gomez coming back into the fold after his horror injury, having that successful rehabilitation period, he almost renders Sigurdsson a little bit redundant in that part of the pitch. Gomez carries the ball better. He's more astute defensively. He's a good passer of the ball as well. So he breaks the lines in, a mu- in multiple ways and he's more secure defensively. So... There is a question mark over Sigurdsson and now what has happened with Gomez being back in the side is that Ancelotti has moved Sigurdsson to the left to compete against Bernard and Awobi where Everton are already strong. Successive managers now have almost tried to accommodate Sigurdsson, look for ways to accommodate him, but I don't see an obvious way in a 4-4-2 that you're able to do that and still have a side that looks like top six contenders. So what happens this summer is going to be really, really interesting in that regard because he's he's aging now. He's into his 30s. He's on a big contract, around 100 grand a week. You would think after Everton paid £45 million for him that they'd probably be looking for at least half of that if they were going to recoup some money. And I don't see where he logically fits into the side, nor do I actually see where he goes logically from a footballing point of view as his next club. What Everton did, even before Ancelotti came in, in November, October, Marco Silva spoke quite openly about the need for another central midfielder. They tried to sign one over the summer. They they wanted a powerful box-to-box type. Had a bid rebuffed for Abdullah Decore from Watford, who he obviously knew well, Silva. Quite liked Tongi and Dombele. You might say that that was a... Quite a quite a good escape, given given what Ndombele has been like in recent weeks for Tottenham. But they identified him as having a high ceiling for that particular role. And that's the kind of player they wanted. I think there needs to be more mobility in that midfield more than anything. Fabian Delph is a good player. Morgan Schneider on his day is a good player. Tom Davis is a youngster with potential, but still not there yet. All those options, it feels a little bit incomplete. And it's kind of Gomez and one other. Ancelotti, I feel, is still deciding on who that other is until the end of the season when hopefully he gets Gabamin back and hopefully he makes another addition. That, that's a key area. Do you like beer? Do you like it free? How about free beer? 
As a valued listener of the Zonal Marking Podcast, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from all across the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash zonal and cover the postage of just £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of Zonal Marking, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 beers total. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries that planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme. So far, the themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer that money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Don't worry. Choose the light plan. Easy. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash zonal to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, our listeners get two extra free beers. Another player of interest, Michael Alex Iwobi, moved from Arsenal, where he hadn't quite broken into the team, to Everton, taking, in some senses, a, a step down, potentially looking to become a key part of a, a top-half Premier League team. But he hasn't quite found his way in under Silva or necessarily yet under Ancelotti and, and given the system we've spoken about he is an interesting player tactically how you fit him in yeah I'm, I'm disappointed I really like Awobi I think he brought a lot to Arsenal that went under the radar he's not the most spectacular player in terms of end product but I think he's just knitting other parts of the team together he works really well he works particularly well in terms of linking with an overlapping fullback and you know as Paddy says that's a part of Everton's game um, in a four-four-two, I think it's slightly difficult to accommodate. I think the obvious role for him is is where Bernard plays, coming inside and allowing Dean Ford on the overlap. But at this point in time, I must say it's probably a move that hasn't really worked out for anyone. I mean, Everton have spent a lot of money; he's not really getting inside. Arsenal, I think, are slightly lacking an alternative uh, in some of the wide positions, maybe even in the Özil role. Um, and yeah, I think Iwobi will just be a little bit disappointed how this season has gone. I don't think the change of manager worked well for him because when there was a 4-2-3-1 under Marco Silva, you know, he was almost up against Sigurdsson for the central role. And, you know, you will know better than me, Paddy, but from speaking to Everton fans, they just thought the team played so much better with Iwobi in that role yeah. rather than Sigurdsson. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just think he's he, he moves well between the lines and he's a typical Arsenal player in the Wenger, post-Wenger era and that he uses the ball well, he connects well, all those kinds of things. The closest I've seen to him from an Everton perspective over the last few years has been Steven Pienaar, another player who didn't have a tremendous output in terms of goals or assists, but his role and importance in the team was almost unquantifiable. It was, <laughs> it was all the intangibles. He did it really well and forged the best partnership I've seen in my time watching Everton, which was Leighton Baines and, and Stephen Pina that famously ended, I think it was Gary Neville's career. He decided that day that he wanted to retire well, it after sounds playing like, against those two. It sounds like Bernard and Dina might be the equivalent now down the left-hand side. Centre-backs, who's been establishing themselves at the heart of the defence under Ancelotti? 
Up to December, Everton's best player of the season was probably Yerry Mina, who had done a very good role in keeping things relatively solid while everything else was going on around him. Chaos reigned elsewhere, but Yerry Mina was a fairly solid presence. I think since then, Mina's levels have dropped off a tad. He's, he's still, for me, one of the two starters, given the lack of other options. His levels have dropped off a tad. And what we've seen since Ferguson came to power and then Ancelotti took the job afterwards has been the real resurgence for Mason Holgate who I actually think we, we speak about Dominic Calvert-Lewin for an England place we're led to believe that Gareth Southgate is quite closely watching Mason Holgate as well because he's that ball playing option at centre-back he's quick I think he's quite a logical player for an England setup under under Gareth Southgate right now he is the first name on the team sheet at centre-back because he just complements the other player better yep. so for example the, the two other options, they're, they're short of one and they believe they're short of one. They want four. They've only got three options. The two other options in Mina and Michael Keane, both of whom you would loosely categorise as ball winners, kind of guys who want to impose themselves in the air, like sitting deep. Holgate gives you the option of playing one of them mm. and having somebody that's quicker across the ground, almost a sweeper type player or somebody that can carry the ball out. He had so a spell at, at right back at West Brom last season in the championship on loan where he was in terms of attacking output he was causing a lot of trouble going forward as well so yeah. clearly such a well-rounded versatile and, and young player as well I, th- I think he's a very good player more or less across the board I think he's only just over six foot but he competes very well in the air for his size it's, it's rare that you see opposition strikers get the better of him in, in that sense he's Everton's best ball playing centre-back so he carries the ball out and looks to create there's a lovely goal during Silva's tenure, actually, against Brighton in a 3-2 defeat in the winter where he strides out of defence, keeps on going and slides, lovely slide rule, rule ball for Calvert-Lewin, who scores. And that's, in a nutshell, what he can bring when he's, when he's on his game. Like you say, the, the West Brom experience has really helped him because he, he was good enough. He was too good for under-23 football, but not quite good enough. It's a recurrent problem. Not quite good enough for Premier League football. He goes to West Brom, plays right wing back, right back, centre back, all of those positions and does well, develops an attacking side to his game that we hadn't seen before at Everton really. And I don't think Everton had banked on his progress really. They, they wanted to sign another centre back, tried to get Rojo, Smalling, tentative inquiry for Phil Jones, really wanted Kurt Zuma back from Chelsea. All those guys were looked at and, and they wanted that extra centre back. Holgate would have been fourth choice quite comfortably fourth choice if, if they got one of those guys. But m- because of the scenario, because of the, the lack of other options, he's, he's pushed forward and really pushed on. And we Everton have seen the benefit of that. He looks like, to me, he looks like somebody who, who should be in and around the England squad when it's announced in, yeah. in March. Plenty of players of, of his sort of age, of his sort of ilk, who uh, have to often wait a long time for their opportunities and uh, then it's up to them to, to seize them. It sounds like Holgate's doing very well in that regard. Michael, we talked about the centre of midfield being something of a question mark in terms of an individual. Uh, could it be Jordan Pickford? There's a lot spoken about Pickford at the moment in a major tournament year, of course. England's current number one, you'd still say. For how much longer, we're not sure. How much of a problem has Pickford's form been this season? Yeah, I think it's been a big problem. And I think that the most worrying thing is, I think he's looked weak in a number of areas. I've always had a slight question about him from long-range shots, and we saw that with the goal at the weekend. Bruno Fernandes scored. 
But I think as well on crosses, on set pieces, he doesn't really impose himself. His distribution really was the thing that he was most famed for. And I think on his on his days, he's capable of really good long-range passes. But also Everton have conceded some goals when you know, he, he's been playing out or his passes have been overhit or just playing his way into trouble. So, yeah, I mean, for England, there are some alternatives. For Everton, I think he'll obviously end the season as the number one. But I wouldn't be surprised if they are making moves in the transfer market because it's been... It's been two disappointing seasons in a row, really. I mean, he was excellent at the World Cup and has come back and it feels like he, he hasn't really ever replicated that form. I don't think he's pushed on. And I, I think the problems that were there two years ago remain. He, he hasn't yet been able to fix them. Not helped, of course, by the fact that Everton have chopped and changed managers with regularity. And he's had multiple different goalkeeping coaches. I think he would benefit from stability. He's one of those guys, still a young player, that would really benefit from stability. <laughs> he's a curious player in that to me, he's your archetypal match of the day player. Gilfie Sigurdsson would also fall into that category in that they they will do in a highlights package, in a five-minute highlights package, they'll do one or two things that really make you sit up and take note. For Sigurdsson, it's a good set piece, a quality shot from range. With Jordan Pickford, it's the sidewinder, as he calls it, where he, he launches it long, diagonally almost, to, to Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Quite similar, really, to, to what you remember, say, Pepe Reina would do for Fernando Torres at Liverpool. That's his kind of go-to move, but I don't think I don't think he knows necessarily when to pause. If you're winning, he maybe doesn't know. He would still do the same passes as if if you were if you were chasing the game, and it's a bit of game intelligence needs to come in. I actually also don't think he's quite as good as the highlights packages make him seem in terms of distribution, and certainly underlying numbers would would back up that assertion. Um, so there are there are. There are a number of issues, like like Michael said. I think he's, there's a problem from crosses. There's a problem from long-range shots. And the other issue to add in here is obviously this intense scrutiny now off the, off the back of the Euros and and Henderson's form for, for Sheffield United, Pope's form for, for Burnley. I don't think he's quite as good as he was when he went to the World Cup. He's certainly not in terms of form. And that's something he he himself, I think, will be fully aware of. He's not yet a top goalkeeper. He has the attributes to be one, and I don't think his, his size should count against him. I, th- I think he saves things that others don't because he's more agile. But I just think that he needs to, in terms of game management and consistency, he needs to take that next step. It might it might never happen. You, you never know. It might never happen. Big big topic of discussion and heightened, as you say, in, in the media at the moment, given the Euros on the horizon. Uh, just to wrap up, we'll finish on more of a positive note. Michael, uh, Everton this season, from what you've seen, from the games you've seen, their best performance so far when they've most stood out to you, uh, what was it that was working so well? I guess that 3-1 win over Palace, I thought they were really impressive. I just like the nature of the goals. You know, we mentioned the first one earlier, Calvert-Lewin flick on Richarlison driving towards goal. The second one, Richarlison header, Calvert-Lewin putting in the rebound and the opening was a Walcott cross to Bernard at the far post. It just showed, I think, why that 4-4-2 is working. The front two playing very well together and the wingers kind of uh, doing their jobs as well. Ten wins this season, Paddy. Any of the others stand out for you? I think the, the Crystal Palace game is, is an obvious one, as, as you both alluded to there. The way the goals are constructed after quite a difficult spell in the first half with the wind, can you believe? It was... It was blowing a gale at Goodison and, and players were actually struggling to control the ball. You look at the second half performance, there was an element of control and they, they did do some very good things well. But I actually think that they've taken one point from the last six. 
That's a, an away defeat to Arsenal and a home draw against Manchester United. Everton fans are quite aggrieved that that's not four points, potentially even six, because in terms of expected goals, for example, they they should have outscored Arsenal. And again, against Manchester United, they easily outshot Manchester United in, in that regard. That, more than the fact that they're able to beat Crystal Palace at home, is the thing I take away from this run in that they're not quite there yet. They need to tweak a few positions. Central midfield, as we've mentioned, they need to get a right winger to compete with Walcott. They can be more productive, but with what he's got, Ancelotti has improved to the the team to the point at which they're able to go toe-to-toe with sides from kind of four, third or fourth down to to ten. So so heading to Stamford Bridge this weekend, full of confidence, you'd say? I I think they should be confident. like I say, you look at the fact that it's only one point from six and maybe some people will worry where the next point will come from. They'll feel a bit disappointed at what they got. But beyond the results, there have been positives in the performances. Everton now go to Stamford Bridge with a strike force that can trouble Chelsea. It can trouble just about any other side in the league on its day. There are other improving parts of the squad. If if Luca Dean puts in five crosses, he'll he'll definitely create a couple of chances. The same for Jabril Sadibi on the other side. So they carry threat in a way that they didn't always under Silver. I, I went through whole games with Silver where I didn't see where Everton were going to score a goal because the build-up play was too slow because Sigurdsson wasn't working as a number 10, wasn't touching the ball enough. That's gone now. They're slightly more direct, slightly more aggressive in the way they play the ball, but that's paying off big time because they've got two guys two guys up front that are getting chances and scoring those chances. That should give them a, a huge amount of confidence heading to, to Chelsea and Stamford Bridge. Any indication what sort of ovation Ancelotti might get from the Chelsea fans? If That's if he's even in the dugout. Will he be in the stands or in the dugout? Uh, that's still up for debate. As we, as we record now, he's been charged by the, the Football Association for kind of storming onto the pitch. And I suppose you could call it confronting or the, the FA would call it confronting the, the referee. Um, Mr Cavana but I, I don't know maybe a mountain has been made out of a molehill there and while he's been charged I think Everton are quite confident themselves that they will have that not overturned but that he won't have to serve a ban so whatever happens he'll be on the touchline or he'll be sat very very close to the touchline giving his instructions you would think over a headset to Duncan Ferguson he's a popular figure Michael You'll probably know this better than me, but as far as I'm aware, he's still a popular figure at, at Chelsea from his time there. He was he was sacked. Been a few pieces written around the place this week about you know obvious looking back at his time at Chelsea, with a general theme being he was pretty unfortunate potentially to lose his job. And out of the flurry of managers Chelsea have had in the last ten fifteen years, may have been one of the better suited to to that particular club and circumstance. Yeah, I think he was. He knew how to deal with superstars. He knew how to deal with big characters in the dressing room. So he obviously won the double there in his first season. Went slightly awry. Second campaign, not entirely his fault. I mean, some of the, you know, he had to fit in Torres when Torres clearly wasn't firing. David Luiz came in and was a bit all over the place. But yeah, I think he'll certainly get a very good re- uh, reception from uh, the Chelsea fans as Probably would at almost all his former clubs, I think. Well, he's got a very good reception, I'd say, from the Zona Marking podcast as well, because uh, a, a really encouraging start to his tenure taking over an Everton side that, while Duncan Ferguson had, had made some moves, needed someone to come in and do a very good job. And, and as they are still challenging, moving their way up the table, challenging potentially for, for a Europa League spot, which I imagine is the 
the, the probably the main objective at this stage. But it's been great to, to look at, at this great man who's such a good addition to the Premier League and, and doing such a good job initially with Everton. So thank you to, to Paddy for all your expert insight. It's Cheers. been great to have you on the Zonal Marking Pod. Uh, and Michael... Back on the road again next week. We're looking at another Premier League manager. But we're not going to tell you who, but thank you very much for joining me today as well. Thank you. Do make sure you tune in next week to the Zonal Marking Podcast. Make sure that you are subscribed. This podcast is, of course, available for free on all podcast platforms, but it's available ad-free on the Athletic site at so many different pods in the Athletic stable. Paddy's own uh, Glad Tidings podcast focusing on Everton, but tons of other good stuff the football cliches show uh, from Adam Hurry going down really well at the moment since its launch and of course no little written content on site as well as you'll all be aware of so if you haven't signed up to The Athletic the way to do that is to head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking that will get you 40% off your annual subscription so give The Athletic a go today and join us next week on the Zonal Marking Podcast <laughs>